morning, it's, it's really cool because we get a chance to worship um, together, but we also are connected to this global movement called the church, right? And it's so beautiful to come together and figure out what does it mean to be the church locally and globally all at the same time. And that's what we're attempting to try to do. Um, so let me just kind of um, set the course this morning. Um, there's a few things um, that I think are really, really important in life, and one of them is serving the global poor, and we're going to get to that. Um, before I get to that, I want to say this. Um, I don't cry very much. I cry about three things in life. The cross, because if you worship or talk or think about the cross, it should cause emotion, right? Because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Um, my daughters, because I love them and they mean everything to me. And the third one I'm not, I'm not really proud about, okay? So you're going to judge me. Go ahead. I don't mind. You'll, that's sinful and we'll repent. But go ahead and judge me. You're going to judge me. But I always cry when the Lakers lose because I'm a huge L.A. Laker fan, okay? And so um, I got to be honest, those are tough things. So um, uh, um, hopefully that won't be happening in six weeks from today. But um, seriously, I can't talk about the cross and the global poor without it being very personal. So what, everything I say today is really, um, is really driven from my own disobedience to Scripture. So it's not coming from this perfected scenario like I know what I'm doing or I've always done it. It's coming from this reality that I ignored the plight of the global poor for many years, and I claim to be a follower of Christ, and God had to break me um, for that and from that, and that's why we stand here today, because we're broken. Um, also, I want to throw in two other caveats real quick, and I think they're important. I don't serve the orphan for the orphan first and foremost. I serve the orphan to bring glory and to be obedient to Jesus, all right? Whenever you serve the global poor, the first thing is you're being obedient to Jesus. And Jesus is our Messiah. He's our example. He's our teacher. And our jobs as Christ followers is to, is to mimic who he is and what he does. And all throughout Scripture, we see a theme of serving the global poor as part of the heartbeat of God. And if it's the heartbeat of God, it should be the heartbeat of every one of his followers all throughout the world at every given second. Second of all, we don't want any guilt to come from this, all right? Guilt has no place in God's kingdom. Um, conviction is great because conviction leads to repentance and repentance leads to a closer walk with God. And that's the goal, right? And so for many of you, if you feel guilty, please understand that's not, that's not from God. All right? It's not from God at all. We're not a guilt-driven organization. We're actually an organization that believes in hope and love and story and that we can make a huge impact in our world if we allow ourselves to be used by the Holy Spirit. And, um, and so I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story. Um, personally, how the organization got started, what we're attempting to do, and how you can get involved. Sound good? Is that good? All right, let me pray. Father, this morning, I thank you for your mercy. Father, I thank you that we stand before you as a church that's on mission to bring glory to your name by serving and loving those around us, both locally and globally. Holy Spirit, come this morning. Do something significant in our lives, not because of worship or because of preaching, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. Father, we thank you for your love and for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about my life. I grew up in Northern California, and um, I didn't grow up like close to the beach. And obviously, you could tell I, I, pro I wasn't a surfer-type guy. Most people were like, you grew up in California, did you go surfing? And I'm like, no, I didn't go surfing at all. Could never figure out the whole balance thing. Just wasn't part of my life. And, um, and um, I did not grow up in church. My father was an atheist. My mom was just confused. And I, as a 17-year-old, if you would have asked me about Jesus, I, I would have had no clue how to respond to that. Like, I heard his name, and I assumed he was an important figure in history, but I had no clue to connect Jesus to God or heaven or hell or, you know, religion or anything like that. 
it just wasn't part of my culture, my ethos, how I grew up. And, um, and so, um, but what was a part of my life at the time as a, as a 16, 17-year-old teenager was um, trying to get dates, right? Some of you know how that is, okay? So I met this um, girl in high school, and she was like um, my Alyssa Milano. And so if you know who Alyssa Milano is, you get that. And if you don't, I just aged myself, okay? All right, so go ahead, get in your phone, Google it. Tweet how horrible of a person I am, and I, I just ruined the whole sermon, basically. Um, so um, anyhow, she, she was like this really, I just love this girl. She was great. She was friendly. She was nice. And, and the way she lived her life just attracted me to her, not only physically, but obviously there was something else going on. I had another good friend of mine that, we you know, we just hung out. And um, it was kind of confusing because I, I started going to his house. And at the time, I was kind of semi-homeless. Like, I wasn't really homeless, but I was just living with different people, different places, because my home situation was not very healthy. And so I remember um, I needed food. And so um, I hung out with my friend, and they would always invite me over for dinner. And they did this really weird thing, okay? And so for those of you who grew up in church, this may not seem weird to you, but for me, it's, it's really, really confusing. They, they held hands, and they prayed. They talk about a pure disaster. It's like we sit at the table, and um, this is a Filipino family, and, um, and um, they're like, okay, we're going to pray for our food. And I'm like, okay, I, I, okay, whatever that means. They're like, let's hold hands. And I immediately was like, this is horrible, right? Like, I do not want to hold anyone's hands. I don't want anyone to hug me. I don't want you to touch me. But I needed food, so I'm like, okay, I got to get used to this, I guess, because this is what they do every night. Eventually, my, my street sense came in, and whenever they did the prayer, I would try to escape to the restroom. I got to wash my hands. And I would wait until they prayed, then I would go back. and like, okay, I didn't have to hold anyone's hands, and I got free food. And as you could tell, they fed me very well back then. And um, some things have not changed. And so, um, so it was spring break. I'm not going to tell you the year. I wouldn't do that to myself. And um, they asked me to go to this camp, right? And this camp is like, you know, in, in Northern California, you grow up going to the beach or going camping. You're, you know, we're an hour and a half from Lake Tahoe, an hour and a half from San Francisco, from the beaches. And so when someone says, do you want to go camping? It's like, yeah, let's go camping. That's kind of a part of our culture. That's just what we did, right? And um, so they said, hey, do you want to go to this camp? And they called it a youth camp. I had no idea what that meant, but, you know. And so um, I'm like, I'm just going to San Diego to kind of do the spring break thing. And I'm like, I can't go to the camp. Went to San Diego, make this long story really short. Had to come back home because of an emergency. And at 1 o'clock in the morning, um, my friend called me and said, hey, do you still want to go to this camp? And he said powerful words. He says, Jennifer is going to be at this camp. <laughs> right? And I'm like, I have five days. My plans were ruined. My best friend is going to camp. And one of my good friends who I'm trying to hook up with is going to camp also. So what do I have to lose, right? So uh, four hours later, we're driving to this camp, and I'm driving with these people, and they have, like, this really strange writing on the van, you know, like, Baptist church or such and such, and I'm just like, this is, I have to get in this van, and I have to drive, and I'm kind of looking at this, like, what am I getting myself involved in? And so as we're driving up, one of the, one, one of the youth guys says, hey, um, did you bring your Bible? I knew I was in trouble right there, because I had no clue what a Bible was. I'm like, what? What do you mean, did you bring a Bible? He's like, well, we're going to, this is a youth camp, and you're going to spend three, three times each day, you're going to hear a speaker talk about Jesus. And I'm like, I got to go home, you know, like, there's just no way. I haven't been to church three times my whole life, and in one day I'm going to break a record. So there's absolutely no way I'm going to this camp. Like, I'm stressed out. There was no cell phone, so all I had was a beeper, and that wasn't good because I had no clue how to get away from these people who had a Bible. And I'm just like, so they all pull out their Bibles, like, this is what a Bible looks like. And I'm like, don't have a Bible. I've never read the Bible. I don't know really what the Bible's about. 
And um, so I'm just like, I'm going home. So I get out, you know, we do the carpool thing. I get out, and I'm like panicking, like, how do I get home? I'm three hours away from home in the middle. I'm going to die. I really felt like I was going to die that weekend. Like, this is not good. And then, of course, um, Jennifer walks out. She goes, Chris, I can't believe you're here. This is going to be such a fun week. And so I decided to stay. Okay? This is really, it's really, God knows how to draw people to himself. He uses very creative ways. And so I stayed for obvious reasons. And that Wednesday night, I gave my life to the Lord. And um, I realized for 16, 17 years, I was a spiritual orphan. And we're all spiritual orphans. Everyone is an orphan. And so that began my 15-year journey of disobedience in the Christian faith. Right? Three weeks into that, I read the entire Bible, and I got to tell you, I was absolutely confused. I mean, no, don't read Leviticus your first three weeks being a Christian. You will not get this, right? And, um, but, but man, I, I became a Christian. I understood what it was like to be fatherless and to have a father. And yet, for somehow, some way, after spending three years in school, Bible school, after planting a few churches, after youth pastoring a couple places, after loving God, reading scripture, 15 years into this, I realized I was completely disobedient to the faith because I did not care about the poor tangibly. I cared. I knew in my mind I was supposed to do it, but there was no evidence of obedience in my life. And then that really, obviously that really worried me. And um, so, so this whole journey starts with, with me being disobedient. And then I'm going to kind of walk through you right now, kind of how we started this thing called Help in Local Poverty. Um, so Help in Local Poverty is, um, next slide, is, um, our mission is a global tribe dedicated to ending extreme poverty by rescuing orphans, restoring their hope, and renewing their communities. Um, next slide. This is the orphans that we serve in um, Zimbabwe. And these are, um, this is the place that I love and I care for. And currently there's about 100 orphans um, that live there. And um, 50, when I first went, they had 50 and we've been able to rescue another 50 orphans since um, we've been around. Next slide. Um, in Zimbabwe, where we're currently at, is, um, th- these are some of the, the realistic statistics of what's going on in the global orphan crisis just in Zimbabwe. And so if you're 34 years old and you're a lady, you're an old person in Zimbabwe. I mean, you've made it. You've accomplished something in this small country of 8 million people. And... Um, but we all know these statistics don't mean a lot, right? I mean, at the end of the day, they're just stats. But this next slide is why we exist. Her name's Linda. She was found in a bush, abandoned by her parents. And it's for the Lindas of the world that we fight. And so this journey of disobedience has gone from me ignoring those who suffer to giving the rest of my life for those who suffer. And the reason we're here this morning is to create a tribe of people who will walk with us to help rescue the lenders of the world. And, um, and so next slide, I want to show you some happy things because um, the kids in Zim are about the happiest kids in the world. I remember going there for the first time and I, I gave them an apple. And um, I'm used to like when someone gives an apple in America, we run away, right? And we hide our apple. And in Zimbabwe, they do the opposite. They actually cut the apple up and they share it. And I remember watching this kid cutting this apple up and he begins to pass out parts of the apple to all the other kids. Because if they've learned one thing in life, they've learned that they can't live alone. That they need each other if they're going to survive. And so, um, next slide. Um, these are um, two of the kids. And Tanashi is um, 
you're right. Sorry, I had to figure this out. And um, he's one of the kids that we sponsor. And so every night, every night, um, my daughters and my wife and myself, we pray for Tanashi. And um, he's our sponsored kid that we love, and he's become a part of our family. And um, I think there may be one more slide. I can't remember. And these are some of the, um, these are some of the other kids. So after spending 15 years being disobedient to God and ignoring um, the crisis of extreme poverty, um, in 2004, I was planting a church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and we were having a staff retreat, and, we, and, and I think you guys were really resonant with this. We were just really frustrated with the church world. Like, oh my gosh, we have to figure out a new way to do this, right? Because it's not about the Sunday gathering. It can't just be about Christians getting a ticket and making it into heaven. And there's like, there's got to be something greater here with the story of Jesus. Like, the story of Jesus is epic, and it's beautiful, and it's powerful, and it's great, but... When we flesh it out into how we as Christians were living here in America, it seemed boring and mundane and confusing and disconnected. And I was going through this real struggle like, God, what does it mean to be a part of a church community that will care for our city and for our world? And, and so in 2004, I started this thing called Helping Local Poverty in my mind. And I think you resonate with this. I was obedient, disobedient for 15 years, and I decided to chunk another three years to that. I got busy, life got stressful, we bought houses, we had families, we got busy in the church world doing church things, and we kind of shelved this whole dream to serve the global poor. And um, 2006, 2007, I was at my in-law's house, and they were cooking dinner, and I was bored, um, just like any good son-in-law should be, bored at the in-laws. And um, I, I had this disc that was sent to me by a friend from Invisible Children, if you know who they are, they're a nonprofit out of San Diego, and I, I put this disc in the laptop, and I, um, I, I saw this 12-minute story of this boy named Emmy and his struggle to live as he watched his mom pass away from the AIDS crisis that took about a dollar a day to give her medicine, and they couldn't afford that. And I, in the story, I watched the mom die, and I watched Emmy question God. How could a loving God allow my mom to die? And he would spend five hours a day going back and forth um, just to get one thing of medicine for his mom to extend her life. And I realized at that moment that I was a disobedient follower of Jesus, that I absolutely took the gospel, the story, and I loved Jesus, and I, I, I really was trying my best to flesh out Christianity. But at the end of the day, I can no longer use excuses of why I was going to ignore the global poor. In that time, a friend of mine moved to Cape Town, and um, he kept asking me, he says, Chris, you have to come, bro. You, gotta, this, you just got to be here. This will change your life. You can make such an impact. And so after watching this video, I went into the bathroom, and I simply used the white throne as an altar of repentance. The lid was closed, I promise. And my heart was broken to think that for, for 15, 16 years, I followed Jesus, and I ignored those who suffer. And Jesus came to rescue those who suffer. And he, cho he chose to use people like me and you to be part of the redemptive story. And I chose not to engage in that. And I deeply repented. Three months later, we were on our way to Cape Town. And um, Jimmy Carter was asked in 1999 what one of his biggest concerns was going forward. And one of the things Jimmy Carter talked about with extreme poverty is there's, beginning, there's a wealth, a gap in wealth that is becoming larger and larger. Historically, the gap in wealth was four to one. The richest person in the community had four times the amount of wealth as the poorest person. That gap today is 75 to one. Cape Town, basically, if you live in America, most of us are in the top 
And living in America is very complex. To be honestly, we're all, most of us struggle month to month to pay bills, to make life. I mean, it's not easy to live in America. So that's not a condemnation thing. At the end of the day, as hard as it is sometimes to live here and to pay bills, we're still in the top 4% of the world's wealth. Um, and so when I was in Cape Town, we would spend time in like these beaches where all the Europeans would come and um, they, would, they would buy homes or second homes. And um, you knew they were Europeans because they all wore Speedos and it was very scary. I decided not to engage in the speedo crisis that I was in, um, right? I have no clue how they do that. And then um, you'd walk a mile down the road, and you would be in a little community of two, three, four hundred thousand people that lived in townships, and they would have nothing. They wouldn't have running water. They'd have one outhouse for 75 to 100 people. Um, unemployment rate was 80%. Um, Country's only been free for 50 years. So imagine where America was at 50 years into our history. And that's where South Africa was at. I'm in this township, and I'm beginning to wonder, like, you know, we saw the stats. How in the world can I make a difference? I mean, seriously, how can I? I mean, this is huge, and it's large, and it's big, and it's massive. 144 million orphans in the world today as we speak. One billion people without water. The, the, the sex trafficking industry is out of control. Second highest black market in the world. And soon it will overtake the drug industry. It's just not right. I'm in Cape Town and I'm, I'm really overwhelmed. And maybe some of you will be overwhelmed as we talk about some of these stories. Uh, and then, then something happened. I found hope. I found hope. I was meeting with a lady and my friend Stephen is, um, he has no clue how to do business, right? He's a seminary guy, grew up in church, knows theology well. I don't know if he could even manage a checkbook type guy. He's just a brilliant dude, and he loves people. And he was creating this business course for three weeks. And I was really worried about him doing this because he kept asking for my advice. And I'm like, this course is going to be a disaster. He, um, he, he locates 30 widows who are in their 30s. They have kids, and their, da- their, their husbands have died of AIDS. And he takes them through a three-week business class. We probably wouldn't call it a business class, but it worked for him. And then, then he connects this business class with um, another company, another nonprofit, that does microloans, and they teach people how to sell purses. So they teach them business and marketing, and they take these 30 widows who are in the midst of this extreme poverty crisis, and then six weeks later, they have a sewing machine. They're sewing purses. They understand business. They know how to do the books. And um, I'm meeting this lady, 34-year-old widow of four kids, and she's crying as she introduces herself. And um, Stephen was trying to get her to tell her story. And she was saying, my whole life I lived on less than $1 a day. I have four kids. When my husband died, I didn't know how I was going to make it. And so she went to this three-week business class. And she went from making $1 to $8. And this is what she told me. And this is why there's hope when you deal with issues of extreme poverty. She said these words to me. She goes, now I feel rich. See, before her kids would eat every other day. So they wouldn't die. Sometimes it would be two or three days. They would take dirt and they'd put butter and they would bake it and they would eat because they were hungry. In the middle of one of the wealthiest cities in the world, extreme poverty exists. And yet, a three-week business class and a $1,000 loan literally changed her life. So as we deal with the large-scale orphan crisis, large-scale extreme poverty We have to break it down into individual stories of hope and courage. And we can connect these stories together and make an impact.
After Cape Town, we headed over to, um, to Zimbabwe. And Zimbabwe was um, 20 times worse than Cape Town, maybe 100 times worse than Cape Town. Unbelievably, you would walk into a store, and there would be empty shelves everywhere you went. If you had money, you couldn't get food, because the government couldn't afford to bring in the food off the ships from Mozambique. It was absolutely horrendous. You would drive eight hours into the bush, and you would see hundreds of people on the side of the road just standing there. 90% unemployment rate, corruption gone wild. These are good, humble people. They have nowhere to go, nothing to do, and no opportunity. We were with the local pastor, and he asked us to stop by um, this gas station. And um, we we get out of this gas station. There's like about two, three hundred Zimbabweans around this gas station. And they crowd our car. And our car has aid, food, medical supplies, gas, um, to feed the 50 kids at the orphanage at the time. And our car's crowded with all these people. And I remember this 11, 12, 13-year-old-ish boy, he, um, he grabs me right, right when I get out of the car. And I was a little stressed out, you know. So, like, how is this, you know, we have food. These guys obviously don't. How is this going to work out? Zimbabweans are known as some of the most peaceful people in the world. So he grabs my arm. He says, thank you for visiting my country. I'm sorry it's in the crisis that it's in. Then he says this. He says, Boss, I haven't had food in three days. I don't want you to give me food because I don't want to beg. But can I work for you? I'm hungry. And I looked him in the eye, and the local told me to say this, and I just did what I was told to do. I told this young boy, no, I have nothing for you. And you can see the devastation in his eye. And so we drove off into the orphanage. And right then I knew I would never say no again if I had it in my power to do something to help a 12-year-old kid was hungry. I just needed somebody to believe in him. We're at the orphanage and um, the next day we walk out to the gate and you see kids lined up. They're kind of knocking on the wall and these kids they want in. They want a bed. They want food. But more importantly they want a community. And I remember this an eight or nine-year-old girl was talking to the, um, to the pastor. She asked if she can come in. And he said, no, we're, we're over, we're filled. We have, nowhere to, we have no more room. We have no more food. And I watched watch this eight-year-old, nine-year-old girl walk into the bush alone, on her own. And I thought, you know what? I know a whole lot of people that would help that girl. There's a lot of people that can make an impact. Not in the 144 million, but in the 12-year-old kid in Zimbabwe, and the 10-year-old girl in the field. It's not about the, 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 the mega crisis. It's about the individual crisis. And so um, at the same time, I, I got to share this to you because um, I saw the gospel like I never saw the gospel before. 
you know how you kind of read scripture and you're like, I want to experience this? Like you're so desperate, like the whole book of Acts and kind of how it goes down. And I like, I want, like, I want to experience the book of Acts in my lifetime. I don't want to just waste my moments like in church and, and going to small group and then doing a nine to five. And, and then the end of my life comes and I, I don't feel like I've experienced the gospel. I don't want to be that guy who's when I'm old, around 60 or 65, I look at my own life and say, you know what? I took all my time and all the gifts that God gave me and all the creativity that God gave me and I used it for myself and for my family. I want to be able to use that for others. And so I'm in Zimbabwe and we, 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 we give this food to the orphans and I asked the pastor, I said, John, how long will this food last? And in Africa, they have a saying, the Americans go 1,000 miles an hour, and an African goes three, right? And it's so true. It's so painful, you know, because I say, John, how long will this food last? And he says, um, he does this really slow. I mean, it's, it's just un- unbelievably slow, like a dial-up, you know, like, I think it will last three weeks. And there's this big smile on his face. And I'm like, I go right back into crisis mode, like, you have 50 kids, and there are kids at the gate that can't get in, and this food's only going to last three weeks, like, what do you do after three weeks? And he tells me this, he says, he says, you're like every other Western that comes through here. You think somehow you know what's going to happen three weeks from now, even when the Bible tells us we live day by day, 24 hours at a time. And he goes, I, I now have, I don't have to live on faith for the next three weeks. And he goes, that's a big issue. And my heart was just crushed. To think that this guy can care for 50 orphans, his own family, and have nothing, and yet have the solid trust that God was going to provide for his community. And so I experienced the gospel unlike any time before in my life. This deep faith that, and, and, and then he says, he says this, and this is very, very important. He says, it's not really my job to feed the kids. It's my job to have the faith to ask God to feed the kids. And it's up to God what happens after that. And I'm like, oh, my God, all my friends need to hear this guy. Like, I'm not there teaching him anything. You know, Western people go train pastors in Africa. I was being trained by his faith and by his hope and by his love. And so, so um, when we got back, we started to help. Um, on the airplane ride back, I was just really conflicted. What does it mean to do something? What does it mean to, to pour out my life for these people that are in need? Not just in Zimbabwe, but all over the world, both locally and globally. Um, and so helping local poverty got started. Now, here's one of the things I was trying to figure out. How in the world do you, do you connect help with the gospel? How do, you, how do you connect serving the poor with the gospel? Because I didn't want to do this in my own strength. I realized quickly that really at the end of the day, it's not about money. Um, it really, it's, somehow the gospel has to explode in the lives of not only these people in Zimbabwe and in South Africa, but in our hearts here in the West. In other words, we have all this intelligence and creativity and passion. We have this, this huge thing called the, the, the church in the West that has so much ability to make an impact. And yet so much of our focus is on ourselves and our own things that we're trying to do. And we easily forget about those who are suffering locally and globally. So I'm trying to wrestle with this. Like, God, how do you, how do you communicate the story? How, how does the orphan crisis or the trafficking crisis, or the water, how does it become real in us? Not just a cause, not just something you click on Facebook and you join, but how does it become personal where these kids in Zimbabwe become our kids? 
and we take personal responsibility for loving them and serving them and helping them out. And um, so we came up with this term called gospel justice. Gospel justice. And here's, here's what we were worried about. We didn't want this to be a social thing. Even though social justice stuff is really good, it's great. Anyone, this is a humanitarian crisis. It's not just a Christian church crisis. But at the end of the day, the only way to solve it is through the gospel. And so think about what the gospel means quickly. What is the gospel to you? Think about the whole story is good news. That, that Jesus was in heaven and he was in comfort and he was with God and he had everything he wanted. I mean, he, he's, he's in heaven. And we're down here and we're broken and we're crushed and we're confused and we're lost and we're hungry and we're thirsty and we're hopeless. And Jesus says, I don't have to go there. It's their fault. They're in sin. But we know that's not how Jesus lives, right? Jesus does the opposite of what anyone would expect anyone to do. He says, you know, I'm going to go ahead and go down there and rescue those people. Because that's the kind of God I am. Then I'm going to create a church that will mimic my character and my personality and my passion. So God raises up the church of Jesus, you and me, to act like him. That we will go in a place like Zimbabwe. We won't just write a check. We won't just join a Facebook cause. We won't just like, you know, hang out at a concert. Um, that we'll actually personally involve ourselves in some of these crises, just like Jesus involved himself in our sinful crisis. We're all spiritual orphans. And Jesus came and he rescued us from our sin. And then Jesus calls us to do the same thing, to live the same way, to be a people who say, I'm not going to live in this earth to build my empire. I'm going to live in this earth to allow Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to help rescue other people who are in sin and who are hurting and who are in pain and and that's the very nature of God. And if it's the nature of God, it should be the nature of our church. And so for 15 years, I proclaimed Christianity. I can get you into heaven. You can have forgiveness of sins. But I still missed out that I had to involve myself with these people who are suffering. And so one of the things I try to do is I try to understand themes. The gospel is good news. What's justice? I'm going to read you this quote about justice taken from the ESV Bible. And I think it hits it head on. This is what justice is. ESV says this, doing good in God's sight includes seeking the just functioning of society. In other words, as Christians, part of our role as followers of Jesus is to make sure our society is functioning in a way that would honor God. And today, 16,000 kids will die because they don't have food or water. That means God is not honored. And it's our job as a church, first and foremost, to figure that out. We can't wait for a government. We can't wait for someone to write huge checks. We have to personally involve ourselves in the crisis. And so, so what I want to do now is I want to just simply take us through a scriptural journey. And I, I, I'm going to allow scripture to speak for itself. Because I believe serving the global poor is one of the most predominant themes in scripture. And, and when, we, when we embrace it, We'll experience Jesus like we've never experienced it before because we'll actually live like Jesus lived. We'll understand what it means to live less over here so someone can simply live over there. Isaiah 117. God's very angry at his people. Very, very frustrated here in Isaiah 1. Matter of fact, 
he pretty much brings judgment on them. And here's why. Go home and read it. Because his people were not giving to the poor. And so here's what Jesus says. Here's what God says through Isaiah. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Let's break this down real quick. At the end of the day, Scripture's telling us something here that's very important. In and of ourselves, we're not very good people. And I know a lot of us don't like to hear that. But we're just not, you know. Um, I'm not a good person at the end of the day on my own. Um, And and the story that I have, the best, um, give this example, is my five-year-old daughter, who's like a little princess. She's incredibly cute. She has this great voice. And um, I learned real quickly that she is a pagan, (laughs) right? I mean, she, um, and so it's Christmas time, and we have a bowl of candy, and I say, no candy until after dinner. And um, they look at me like, with this, okay, yeah, Dad, sure. And um, three or four minutes later, I see my, my daughter running through the house, and chocolate is coming out of her mouth. And I look at her, and I say, hey, Kenzie, what do you have in your mouth? And I thought I gave her a heart attack. She was so scared. She just stopped, and she's like, she turns around, and just chocolate is everywhere. And she goes, nothing, Dad. I have nothing in my mouth, Dad. And I'm like, oh, Really? Come over here, sweetie. And she's like, she walks slowly over and she puts her hands behind her back. And I say, sweetie, what's behind your back? What's, behind, what's in your hands? And she does like the switcheroo thing, you know. We're like watching this go down. And she's like, nothing. I got nothing, dad. Why do you keep asking me these questions? At the same time, the chocolate's pouring down her mouth. And I'm here trying not to laugh and trying to be like the good dad. Who's figure- and I'm like, okay, God, this is, this is funny, but not really. And, um, and then she, um, I said, show me your other hand. And she does the switcheroo thing and out pops the other hand. I got nothing, Dad. And um, I said, show me both hands. And I thought she was going to pass out because she knew. So she drops the candy like the little Hershey kiss. And she's like, I got nothing, Dad. And I said, honey, what's on your shirt? She looked down and she saw the chocolate. And she knew she was busted. And I knew my kid was sinful. And I knew she was in need of a Savior. You, we have to learn to do good. By God's wisdom and God's strength, it's not natural for us to say, I'm going to live in a smaller house and a cheaper car, and I'm not going to have all these material things. It's not natural because we all want that. But the character of God says something different. And so we learn to do good. Seek justice. This is what God was telling his people. Don't just hear about it. Seek justice. We know that there's a trafficking crisis or a water crisis or an orphan crisis. We can't, we can't ignore that. We're the church of Jesus. If there's anyone in the world that can't ignore that, it's us. Because ultimately it's our responsibility to use our wealth and our intelligence and the manpower and our, you know, the story of Jesus to, to be people who seek justice on behalf of those who are suffering. The next thing is correct oppression. It didn't say advocate for it. He didn't say no about it. God's telling his people to do something about it. Change it. Give up your life and, and make a difference in someone else's life. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. The orphan crisis is an issue the church needs to face. Plead the widow's case. Then if we go to Luke, next chapter, next, um, next slide. And I, I love Luke because Jesus just battles the devil, right, in the wilderness. And um, 
It's kind of interesting if you think about Jesus, our Messiah, the very thing, the very hope that we want to become like, right? And um, Jesus is, is, is in this battle with the enemy. And, and this is the first thing he does when he comes out of the wilderness. He goes to the synagogue and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. There's a lot of other things I thought Jesus would say. I just kicked the devil's butt in the wilderness. I'm, I'm ruling now forever and ever. You know, it's finished, it's over, it's done. I mean, I would, there's a lot of things I would say. But Jesus, you know, Jesus is Jesus. And he says, I'm here to proclaim good news to the poor. The very first thing our Savior and our Master says are those words. I'm here to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set the liberty of those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Let's go on to one other, two other passages real quick. The first century church, Jesus died, rose from the dead, launched this thing called the church. You and I are part of this movement in our generation for our day. And um, listen to how the Christians react to those in need. And here was one of the biggest crises I had in my life. I realized those who are suffering today, I'm going to spend eternity with in heaven because many of them are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I ignored them. But how sinful that I ignore my own people who, who serve, my, you know, the same God while I live here in wealth and they live in poverty. Now, in the days the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudia. So the disciples determined, everyone in, in church, this is one of the most powerful verses, you, you got to get this. Everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sent it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas. My friend Stephen wasn't really a business guy, but he had the ability to put together a little plan and find 30 widows and walk them through how to build a business. That's the practical way of serving those in need. We all have an ability, something in us, that we can give back to help this crisis. And the last scripture this morning is um, Galatians, Galatians 2, 9. And this is, um, this is Paul talking to the um, leaders of the Jerusalem church. And I love the wording here. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship. And so... Paul is going up. Paul and Barnabas are saying, hey, I want to go out and go on a missionary journey. I want to go out and, and, and take the gospel from the Jewish people to the Gentiles. And he's asking the permission of the elders. And the elders said, yes, go. But here's what they, here's what they told him to do. Only they asked us to remember the poor. This is the elders of the church. The, 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 their influence is all throughout the New Testament. And, and, and this is what the Apostle Paul, who wrote a third of the New Testament, says. The very thing I was eager to do. So we have Isaiah. We have Jesus. We have the first century church. We have the Apostle Paul. And we have the pillars, those who walked with Jesus. And they all talk about what it means to serve the poor. And if they talked about it then, may we talk about it now. And may this be something that we all get involved in. Some of us are going to dedicate our whole lives to do it like I'm doing it. Others are going to, you know, God's going to call you to other areas. But you can use something you have there to be a part of the solution. Here's the greatest thing with, with, with poverty these days. There's actually hope that we can accomplish it. 
There's actually hope that we can make a dent. There's hope all over. The biggest reason poverty won't end is if we choose not to have compassion and if we choose to live lives that are anti the way of Jesus. But if we choose not to and we choose to help and we choose to serve and we choose to get involved, we can make a huge impact on this thing called global poverty. Here's some ways you can get involved with us personally. And trust me, when I say help is, man, we're small, we're young, we're learning, we're struggling, um, but we feel like we're on to something. And it's not even about help. Find a way to get involved through your local church, through another organization. Here's what we do. We rescue homeless orphans. I mean, it's unbelievable to watch a kid live in a dump by themselves and to think that somehow this connects with the heartbeat of God. And I don't care, man, I'll give up everything to rescue that kid. And I see it all over. I mean, you know, little, my kids, my nine and seven-year-old, if they lived in a dump, I just can't imagine. And so what we do is we rescue orphans. You'll see our little sign back there. We started this thing called Garage Show for Orphans. The website goes up soon. We basically just ask people to give away their excess stuff that they don't need, throw a garage sale, and we take 100% of that money, and we build orphanages to rescue these kids. I don't want kids at a gate wanting to get in. I want to be able to open up the gate and say, we have a home for you. And, a, and you know what's more important than food and water and all this other stuff? It's community. These kids need community. You want to fight the trafficking issue, fight the orphan issue. Um, four of our girls were trafficked in November. Here's why. In Cairo. The worst call I've received so far. The leader there calls me and says, we had to let go of 20 girls because we, no, we can no longer take the, 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 the 18 months and the 12-month-year-olds. So we have all these 10 and 12-year-olds and we let them go onto the streets of Cairo, and four of them disappear within 24 hours. We can't. The orphan crisis is huge, and orphanage is not the best scenario, but it's, it's, a, it's a solution along the way. And so then we sponsor each child. We rescue a child. We sponsor each child. One of the reasons the local leaders can't work on development work and help their own people out of poverty is because they're so focused on just trying to feed kids every day. And so um, we have kids that you can sponsor back there. We have 60 more in Zimbabwe, and then um, we're going to Uganda and Kenya and um, Haiti and all, all over. T-shirts we're doing today all goes to building an orphanage in Haiti. We'll build that this summer. The third thing we do is we walk with the local leader in long-term development work. Microfinances, farming, water crisis. Um, so we're there long-term. Not long enough where they rely on us, but long enough to know that we're going to walk with you. We're not going to write a check and send it and leave. We're going to walk and journey with you together because that's who Jesus is and that's what he calls us to do. And um, I want to thank you for your time this morning. I really love you guys as a church. I pray that you would seriously um, continue to do something, continue to advocate, continue to speak, continue to pray, continue to help because we need it. And um, more importantly, these kids in Zimbabwe need it and, and the 144 million orphans in the world need it. Let's pray.